Director, Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor, and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Tony and talking about her adoption journey. Hiya, Tony. Hiya, Tor. Really nice. Hiya. Um, so we were, we've obviously known each other a little while and chatted quite a few times, but I'm just really interested to know how you arrived at adoption really as an option for you. Well, I've been with my partner, Kate, for significant period of time probably about 10 or 12 12 years and she had adult children that had lived with with us both and I wanted to have children myself and she also you know really was interested in in having a child and we did actually try in type and we did actually try artificial insemination initially but I think I always knew that I really wouldn't quite like to adopt and my experience um, was that I had been adopted as uh, around 18 months old. So it felt a little bit like coming home, really. Yeah, so sort of full circle almost. Yeah. But I mean, I, I guess adoption's so different now, though, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions on your age, but <laughs> um, I guess we're going back a little a little while. And, you know, adoption's, adoption's changed quite a lot, really, even quite recently, hasn't it? It has. I think... It was very different when I was adopted. I was placed after my foster carers at the time were going on holiday and they would, didn't want to take me. And I was about a year old, I think, at that point. And so I was identified some respite carers who then became my long full-time care parents. And I was adopted not that long after that. And it's interesting, sort of, I saw a couple of documents about my history and some of the language as a now social worker in, in, in you know the 20th century you just think oh that sort of language some of the terminology was um, not ideal so having read documentation about yourself yeah and like you say you're now a social worker that must be quite hard to read I imagine going back to that start it is I think it's 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 quite hard because you sort of particularly with my professional hat on, I can sort of know what's talked about between the lines a little bit. Mm. And my birth family, my birth mother was the third generation of girls who were brought up in care. So her her mother and her grandmother were, were all in residential care. And so you can sort of see some of the terminology. I can't remember exactly what they were saying, but it was basically that she was trying her best but wasn't really managing parenting and also some of the complications was that she was in a relationship, had an affair with a black man who then produced me and so there wasn't any way of sort of disguising that and um, she made the, the decision that she wanted to remain with her then partner and so I um, wasn't able to grow up to grow up with her so I don't think that there was a great deal of understanding or consideration really about race or how that might impact and and my adoptive parents did think about it but maybe didn't really know what the implications were going to be particularly sort of being in growing up in such a 
a very white area, although when I was born, I was born in Southampton, which is quite diverse, but we moved away. Right. Are your adoptive parents white? Yes, they are. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, so again, I mean, I think that was, again, quite, quite usual back then and has become usual again, I guess, that children are adopted into families of different ethnic origins. But I think possibly it's a little bit different now in that, you know, my son is mixed race and I'm white. And we had to answer questions on what that would mean and how we might approach that. And but I, I guess back then, maybe not so much or perhaps just on a much, I don't know, much more shallow level, possibly. Would that be right? Yes, I think it, I think it was. I think um, there was very little. I mean, my parents were given very little information about what adopting a black child was going to mean or even things like skin care, hair care. Mm. And, and I, with hindsight, I think my adopted mum was quite daunted and intimidated by my hair. She didn't really know what to do with it. And therefore, for a long time, we kept it very short. And she didn't have any of the right tools or didn't know about Afro combs until I was, I think, in late primary school. It was a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think that they were given really the right information, but perhaps people didn't have it at that point. And I do think that there's, there's more information now, but I also think that perhaps there's less importance put on same race placements. And that's partly, I guess, because the reality is that black children do, I know, professionally do wait longer. And mm. therefore, perhaps the, the, the net has to be wider to enable agencies to find placements for, for black children. But do think there's a lot of conversations that perhaps could have been had a lot earlier on that weren't really raised for for my parents and you know their understanding of of what race meant or because I, I was the only black child in in the areas that I lived and they didn't necessarily see that as being particularly a thing to talk about yes it was a very much a sort of colorblind approach in that we don't really talk about it, which was, you know, I'm, I'm coming from the best of intentions, I guess. I think so. But I mean, how did you, in that environment, come to your sense of ethnic identity? How did you even, I guess, think of yourself back then? Did you, as a young child, did you think of yourself as black? Or did you, was it not really even in your frame to take on an ethnic identity as such? You know, what was that experience back then? I, I think... What I did was I read a lot and I listened to music quite a lot and I listened to spoken radio and I think those sorts of things enabled me to sort of access some understanding of of black people and black communities. But I think it was it was quite hard to feel certainly in secondary school because I went to a um, girls' school and next door was a boys' school. And so what what happened for me was that um, within the girls' school, I was pretty much ex- treated like anyone else. But unfortunately, on the way to and from school on the school bus, um, I got a lot of name-calling from the boys on the bus. And I think what that did make me have to think about how I was and how I was different... And it was quite hard to sort of see it as a, as a positive. So I guess I looked for other 
sources of images and I think I, I didn't meet a, in person from my recollection a black person until I was about 18 or to have a conversation with um, so it was all sort of based on information that I saw in new movies or books mainly probably books and I, I do recall having a conversation with my mom about the riots when they were this is showing how old I am. The Brixton riots <laughs> happened. <laughs> the 19th, whatever. What year would it have been? Um, oh, God. Yeah, it was the late, must have been the late 70s, yeah. I think. And I know, I remember very clearly my mum saying, watching the TV, oh, they should be sent back. And me feeling like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean about me? Yes. <laughs> but so I don't think, that they were the most under, you know, the most informed. But in all fairness, why would they be? They were around people who looked like them, and you know, and and they did talk about it a bit in terms of, you know, how was it going to be to adopt a child who grows up sort of not seeing other other people who look like them. But I think they thought. They even considered adopting another black child, but they thought that that would be too much for them and perhaps for the community as well. But my dad was 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 always very empowering, and he built me up. Perhaps not to talk about that, but he did give me a very strong sense of, you know, being somebody who's important. Or, and I, I think I get my sort of resilience to some extent from from him, really. But it has made me think very much how important it is that even small messages that you give children can be sort of lasting, be they positive or negative. Um, you can really change the trans. You can really change the direction of a child's life just by a couple of sentences. Sometimes it's really interesting that your ethnic group, if you like, your ethnic background was one of the reasons in the paperwork that your birth mum felt that social pressure that she couldn't stay with you now whether there would have been more things as well I, I you know lots of things are more complex than they sometimes seem aren't they but you know that was given as one of the reasons and then you were placed in a white family and then when there was discussion of another child coming along another black child coming along it was like well that would be a bit too much it seems really like right from the start it was a thread running through really intertwined with your adoption and the acceptance and all of that? I think it was. I think it 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 was all it was a thread that was throughout my childhood, but it was also unspoken. And that I'm sure to some extent is why one why I became a social worker, one you know, two why I sort of gravitated towards places like London and Manchester where I could be around other people who looked more like me because it was something that I was always very conscious of, even though it was never talked about. And I think what over the years I've come to realise is if, if you don't talk about it and if you don't give the child permission to talk about it, then they'll make up things in their head and they'll assume that instead of understanding about racism, they'll assume that the reason that people are being horrible to them is about them. Yeah. And that 
then exposes them to, you know, really potentially struggling with that, with some of those issues. And to some extent, I, I felt, you know, the bullying and the name calling was hard to tolerate, but it was also con- quite contained in one aspect, one period of time when I was going to and from school. What I did find was when the bus driver called me the N-word on one, I think he was, I, my recollection is that he was a um, substitute bus driver, so it wasn't a usual one, and he joined in with the boys. I really struggled with that because it was almost endorsed as by an adult, I guess. And but, but within sort of other environments, I got a lot of positive feedback from friends and stuff. So I think I was fortunate in that I had some of the tools to be resilient, but children shouldn't have to be resilient, I suppose, in those situations. And that's why it's so important to, to just talk about it, because otherwise your children are, are sort of trying to fill in the blank. They're not always going to get the right conclusions and they're not always going to have the tools to challenge bad behaviour or to feel like they can can raise it. Could you have said back then when you were a child what racism was? I know you were obviously feeling it and experiencing it. Could you have named it? Would you have known what to call it? Not particular. No, I don't think I would have done. I saw it as something quite discreet. So one of the things I do recall was there was a, a girl that went to the same school who called me a name or some called me some kind of name, and that, that was the first time it had happened within the school environment. And so I lashed out. I think because I, I, I saw it as a sort of threat to this safe space. And actually, what happened was that we became friends after that. And what I realised was that although she'd used this you know, I can't remember what phrase it was, but she'd called me names. Actually, she was doing that because she was really miserable. I remember understanding that, So, but I don't think I would have had the words to talk about what it was until later, later on. Although I did, I mean, I listened to people like Bob Marley and some, some reggae and stuff, so I did have some understanding, but not really to articulate it, I don't think. And what was interesting was, for me, the react, my parents' reaction, the school's reaction to me lashing out, because usually I was very compliant, was that, you know, I was being unreasonable and why didn't I just ignore that, but not really seeing it in the context of the whole. Mm. No, absolutely. It must have been quite hard to have to find those pieces for yourself of black identity. And, um, you know, it sounds like you were doing and were doing in some really positive ways but it doesn't sound like any of that was really handed to you either at school or at home it sounds like you went looking for that when you were a bit older say I don't know late teens early 20s how how did your identity develop then and how did that sense of self develop I ask because my partner Jackie who's is of Indian origin but born in the UK she she had quite a strong Indian identity because she was raised by Indian parents and stuff but she came to the word black in her late teens, early 20s, and black activism became really important to her politically, as did the label black, because it defined the experience of of the bullying that she'd experienced of the, um, you know, there were, I don't know, like BNP type protests in the area and stuff. Mm. You know, there was a whole sense of outsiderness. And 
and the word black became really important politically so it was partly identity but it was partly politics as well for her at that sort of age and I just wonder for you as that identity developed out of something very much within your adoptive family as a child into sort of young adulthood where you went with that I think I struggled a bit with the labels and I, because I wasn't used to being around black people when I left home I sort of it was a little bit push-pull I wanted to be around black people but I also didn't know whether I'd get it almost get it right whether I'd know or I'd say things that were wrong or would offend people or something and so I did seek out and this was when I once I left home I went and lived in London and so I did seek out black lesbians particularly but I did. I still struggled with it. What, I, what when I was still living at home, what I did do, and this would have been in the first year, I think, of art college. I went to art college from school. I did project art project, which enabled me to go to Brixton and take photographs, and and that was something that my parents sort of felt was legitimate because I was doing my art homework but it also gave me a chance to be in an environment where people looked more like me and so that was quite formative yeah that was quite an important time for me it was just an afternoon I think really but so it I think I was also obviously coming out as well so that that was another layer on on (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I think I um I came out to my parents and my mum wasn't very impressed. So (laughs) kept quiet about it for a little bit. But that was all around the same time. So there was lots of working out who I was and and what I wanted, you know, wanted to be. And I think to some extent it felt a little bit like my life was on hold until I could leave home and I could go and live somewhere that felt a bit more at home and and comfortable because I was living in various places in the south coast and I just wanted I knew I wanted to be living in a city that was fairly consistent from quite an early age and I guess all of that is overlaid by the fact that you'd been adopted and how how prevalent was that in your mind at the time I think it was it, it was prevalent in that it was always obvious and that's the other part of the race thing that is sort of that's the the part of the race dynamic which you know, when you go out with your parent, it's obvious that you're not birth relatives or people assume that you're not birth relatives. Mm. So it's always something you sort of have to explain a little bit more more than you might want to because it's not something that you necessarily want to go into great detail about with every and any strangers. So it was it was certainly a consideration and parents felt, my mum certainly, I think, was a little bit felt like, you know, this was a good thing that she'd done. But I think she didn't always know what some of the complications of adopting might might arise. And I wasn't a particularly difficult child and until I hit teenage years, which then I think she probably would have said that I was quite challenging some of the time (laughs) Um, because you know again I was trying to find myself and 
I think in in my late sort of teenage years, before certainly before I was old enough to drink, I was going out to clubs and pubs and things, which I'm sure they wouldn't have wished for me. But I was it was so important to me to make links with the gay community, and that was obviously where the gay community was. There wasn't yes. any such thing as youth groups at that point, or certainly not where I was. So I do recall on several occasions climbing out the window to go to clubs after I passed. Um, so which now as as a parent sort of (laughs) it fills you with dread doesn't it when you think if your own kids did what you did you'd just be feeling sick (laughs) totally totally so yeah I do have some sympathy for my poor long-suffering mother (laughs) I should interview her next and get the other side of this (laughs) so so you obviously, you know, you sort of got to young adulthood there. And then at some point you formed the relationship that you are still in. How old were you when you two got together? Oh, gosh, Matthew, Matt. We've been, I think we've been together about 22 years. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, in my, I'm in my 30s, I think. Okay. And so, and so you said that your partner already had kids. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. She had two children who were early primary school age when we got together okay and did they live with both of you yeah yeah okay and then and then later down the line you both decided that you wanted to adopt yeah that's that's right we you know, obviously applied together and went through the assessment process by which time kate was working as a manager in the health service and i was a social worker and the whole sort of assessment process was a little bit I think challenging in in that it wasn't challenging if you know what I mean I think we we felt that the certainly the initial assessment for Ethia wasn't quite as as in in depth as we'd expected really and I think that there was a little bit of an assumption that because we both worked within social care that actually we knew it all and we understood it all And I think with hindsight, there was a lot of things that we could have done with somebody saying, you know, and and going through in much more detail. And I think probably if if we were going through the assessment now, those sorts of questions would be asked. But I think how how it impacted on the children that were already in the household, we didn't work that through as much as we could have done or or would have liked to have done, I think, with hindsight hindsight because um, it does impact and I know you know from being a social worker one of the key challenges has, has been other children in the household and how they see the new child. I can recognize that because we had two birth children when we adopted and um, I don't think that we really pulled apart the impact it would have either I think we just said it'll be fine you know lots of times there is a younger sibling comes along in lots of ways and I don't think we really explored it. And I think the social worker did try to get us to look at it. But I think sometimes kind of the adoption fog comes down and you're so determined about what you're doing yeah. that you you don't really pause. And I think also we were quite worried to admit hesitation yeah. or admit doubt in case that doubt was then used as a reason to reject us. So we just didn't really... Where, decent points were raised about but what about this but what about that we kind of gave the right answer without actually doing a whole lot of the reflection sometimes I think yeah yeah I I I think it's and sort of having sat on both sides of that dynamic I think it's really hard because 
as a necessity you want people to think about the implications of it but equally you don't want to scare them off and on the other side as the adopter you don't like you say don't want to say the wrong thing and then it all implodes and you don't have the opportunity to do it and I think it's it's quite difficult because you've got you've both got your own aims and reasons for getting getting into that conversation and sometimes I'm starting to come to the, con the conclusion that actually you probably need somebody who's outside of that situation to be coming in saying well what about this and have you thought of that and have you thought of that and how because a lot of a lot of those things actually had you thought about it and put a strategy together or set out you know this these are the ways that we're going to solve that problem it would have been fine but actually we didn't have the chance to do that because we didn't even ask the question or work through the questions yeah i agree with that i almost wish that prep was longer the preparation part yeah. and that the assessment was shorter and that really that they're done by separate agencies even that you know you you are prepared by one and really scrubbed up and put through your paces and that you do pull apart your own weaknesses knowing you can't get rejected for them but just pulling them apart and having a look at them yeah. and then you go on for assessment with a much better idea of what you're capable of and not you know yeah that's what I would do if I was in charge <laughs> um, so so you went through that assessment process and tell me what happened next yeah then um, so we were assessed by our local authority and then we pretty much heard very little to nil for months and I think at that point the person who assessed us was off sick and so it just seemed to stop so we got increasingly frustrated and at that point you know there weren't some of the systems that there are now but there was a magazine called Be My Parent and so we started taking sort of control of the situation for ourselves really and so we got this magazine and we looked through and we put us my partner Kate inquired about a couple of young of children and at that point what she was told was that we couldn't be considered for that child but we could be considered for a child with disabilities. And I don't know, I know I've heard other LGBT adopters say similar things and I'm praying and I'm sure that it's not the case now, but there was this sort of assumption that, you know, the, the prime children <laughs> needed a man and a woman, you know, a, a heterosexual family. And, and I don't know what it said about us and I don't know what it said about disabled children because that, you know, our, our lives were so busy and we had other children. That just wasn't practical. So, yeah, we, we got increasingly um, adamant that we'd need to look and, and do things for ourselves a little bit. And so we came across Effia in, in this magazine and her ethnicity was the same as my partner's and it would just really looked like a good match we contacted the social worker and she was just completely different she was really positive she was really excited about the match she saw it as a really good combination and so it, it sort of went 
very quickly after that. And so she came to us to live when she was a year old, just after her first birthday. And by that time, we were aware that birth mum was expecting another child. And so we were assessed for her also. So then um, Amina joined us at the same age, just after her first birthday. Wow, so two children. Yeah. <laughs> two more children. <laughs> and how long ago was that? Well, Effia is now uh, 19. So, yeah, that was... We are going back a bit. <laughs> <laughs> And she, she's studying in a university and Amina is living at home and, and at college. So, I mean, you are that amazing thing of, you know, a same-sex couple that adopted long enough ago. The children, you know, one of them is a young adult now. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, staggering sometimes. And, you know, they, I mean, they both experienced some challenges in school because of our having female parents and they were certainly very careful about who knew in secondary school because they'd had quite a lot of difficulty in primary school but at the same time I think they've been exposed to so many different people um, because obviously my partner's a part of a a huge and um, very sociable and amazing Ghanaian family but they've had been exposed to so many different experiences and cultures and you know they've grown up in into some two amazing very um forthright very determined <laughs> young women. i don't know what we did and we're suffering the consequences now as, as teenagers i can imagine where they get the determination from having met you know you <laughs> so. um, I, i'm really interested in what you brought of your past into that parenting because it seems so so relevant and yet so different in some ways you know Mm. the adoption system was different when you adopted from when you were adopted the way that the country views race and ethnicity has moved on a lot although not enough Mm. you know the you were raised in isolation as the only black child whereas the children that you adopted were not they were raised in a black family and I just wonder what you brought of that and what the differences were really I think it's made me really determined to try and and mitigate some of those you know certainly it, it I think what it's it's made me think is that it was really important for me to give our girls some very much stability, to be in an environment that is multidimensional, and that means not sort of only surrounded by only women or only lesbians or only black people, white people. And it was really important for us both for them to be exposed to a range of people and experiences. I think it's it's been really important for me to encourage them to be who they want to be, I suppose, really. And I think education has been very important to both of us. And so we've really encouraged them in terms of learning, but also recognising that that's not everyone's cup of tea. And I, th- I think it's I've become a lot more flexible and than as I've got older. I think you know because I think going through that sort of teenage years, 
does make you feel perhaps a bit angry or or like you know perhaps things didn't work out in the way that you wanted but I think what I've done to try, try and avoid becoming bitter or resentful to use those experiences to make things better for somebody else and I guess that I'm sure that, that there's a connection between why I'm a, I went into social work and I've worked almost exclusively with children in care or foster carers or adopters throughout my my professional career and I know that that's why because I wanted to be a small part of giving somebody a different experience and it just I think it's made me more and more determined and and recognizing that you know you can have a really big impact on somebody if you just show them a different way. That's brilliant thank you so much. I'd like to thank my guest today Tony. If you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at LGBT Adopt Foster and on Facebook search New Family Social, all one word. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next week with more guests and more tea. Thank you.